there's so much to learn in this role that um, I feel like the next thing always for me is what can I learn today? Um, and then what can I do with that to help maybe another office or advisor that didn't know about this, but that could really help. You're listening to the Destiny Benders podcast, where we speak with international educators and education entrepreneurs to hear their stories of how they got started and what keeps them going in international education. I'm Jessica Glauser-Giver, and my podcast co-host is Girish Balola. Hey, Jessica. What's going on? How you been? What's new? Hi, Girish. Thank you so much. Not a whole lot has been new for the for me in the past week. We haven't been doing much here in the south of the UK. Still hot and sunny. How are you in Minnesota? Minnesota. Minnesota summer is here. You know, we're getting a lot of this bad um, air quality because of the wildfires up in Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there are days when it's like really hazy. Looks like somebody's like burning a fire right outside my house. Um, they warn us not to go outside because AQI really yeah, it goes up to like 180, 200. Which I is- didn't actually know. I mean, I know where Minnesota is in the grand scheme of things on the map, but didn't think it was that close for you to be affected by those fires. So I'm really surprised, actually. Yeah. And so it's been off and on for a couple of months now, but I, I don't know if you know that New York got hit pretty bad. I did see that. I watched the BBC, which is my source of truth on the news, uh, and they did report on that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, uh, I'm excited for our guest today. Who do we have? Our guest today on the podcast is Melissa Deschamps. And what I find really fascinating is that Melissa and I went to the same grad program at NYU, except we did not know each other and had no idea we were in the same program. Not only, I mean, we went to the same program at the same time (laughs) in the same year. And this is something that I just discovered since having invited her onto the podcast. So I invited her on not knowing that she was uh, an NYU International Education MA program alum, wow. like me. I, she came two cohorts later than I. So while we were there at the same time, we weren't in the same cohort. And that might be why we just didn't, our paths didn't cross. Yeah, but, well, I've known her for a while through all the work that we obviously mutually do. So I'm really excited to hear more about her journey. So let's uh, get her on. Welcome back to Destiny Benders. Today, Girish and I have as our guest, Melissa Deschamps who is the Regional Educational Advising Coordinator at Education USA for the Middle East and North Africa regions. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, Melissa. It's so good to see you. It was good to see you at NASA a couple of weeks ago. Welcome to the podcast. You know, we've known each other for a little bit. I know the work you do, but I really don't know you. Like, we don't know what your history is. So why don't we start there? Tell us how one ends up being a REAC and, and all the things you've done up to this point. Yes, um, it's interesting because the REAC position, um, Education USA as the network actually, was not something that was ever really on my radar or that I ever really knew about um, in the work I was doing prior to this. Taking it back, I um, went to undergrad at Seton Hall University 
uh, majoring in communication. So initially I thought I wanted to be a journalist, um, a sportscaster, as my parents just reminded me this week. Through kind of exploration, realized it's not really the area that I wanted to to focus on. And so I started to um, work with uh, housing and residence life and exploring working with students. Um, programming, getting involved with different activities. And through that, discovered that maybe that's kind of the area that I wanted to be working in. Um, so I stayed communications as a major, but really looking more at cross-cultural and intercultural areas. And then majored in international education for my master's right after and ended up working with IIE, the Institute of International Education. So Things kind of just evolved and grew naturally there. And with IIE, I had the opportunity to work on a variety of different programs and grants and and start to learn more about kind of the different spaces that um, make up the international education field. There's so many aspects of it from a programmatic to grants to development. And so uh, this was a great opportunity for me to just see what was out there. Through my work with IIE, there was an opportunity to be part of a project team that was going to be taking on a 27-month project with the state of Qatar, which, interestingly enough, was not a country I ever knew anything about. But coincidentally, uh, at our headquarters for IIE in New York, Qatar owned the third and fourth floors. So basically, all I knew about Qatar at the time was, oh, those are the folks that own, you know, those other floors. Let me just pop in and ask them about their country. And so became the journey, the the beginning of the journey towards um, the Middle East, which was never a region I envisioned myself visiting or traveling to, much less living in for such a long time. I've now been living there for 18 years so it's it's really become kind of a second home. And so I moved to Qatar, uh, worked on the project, learned a lot, struggled a lot. It was quite an interesting and challenging um, two and a half years working on that particular project. But it introduced me then to more of the higher education space. The contract and project that we were working on was really to help the state of Qatar revamp their national scholarship program. So part of our mission was to train uh, Qataris to manage and take over the program. But then at the same time, we also were working with students who were uh, awarded these scholarships to study outside of the state of Qatar. So that was my introduction to working more closely with students again after kind of my college years. And so that was very exciting work. I really found myself interested in wanting to stay more connected to that direct student piece instead of the programmatic side. Towards the conclusion of that project, uh, one of the branch campuses that were being uh, introduced in Qatar at the time, uh, Carnegie Mellon University's Qatar branch was opening up and had a new position for director of international education. Through my name in the hat, I was able to get that position and so decided to stay beyond the two and a half years with that particular IIE project. 
and joined Carnegie Mellon's Qatar campus. And that was a great experience. I was there for almost eight years. And that particular role, again, I think everything just led into one another um, because it was, again, a bit of that startup type of energy. While there was obviously programs that existed because of the main campus, because this was a new campus, a new context, I did have a lot of flexibility and freedom to be creative in terms of the programs that I wanted to try out, to introduce. It gave me an opportunity to really talk more closely with the students about which boundaries we can try to push, what areas we needed to kind of develop a little bit further before we got there. And so um, that was really a, a wonderful opportunity to get to know the culture in a different way, uh, but again, get involved with working with students more closely. And so I did that for a little while, and then I decided it was time for a professional sabbatical. So <laughs> all throughout this time, I did have a family and um, kind of other things going on. Um, so after my third child, I thought that that would be a really good opportunity to just take a break and pursue different interests. And so I volunteered, I became a um, family music education teacher, a group fitness instructor. Uh, so I was trying lots of different things and, and doing all those fun self-learning projects, I guess. And so I was really just waiting for the right opportunity to come up. And the React position uh, became available. And, and like you said, Grish, when we were talking before, the hiring process can take a while. I really intended my professional sabbatical to be a one-year kind of deal. Um, that was the, the plan and, and, you know, the agreed upon timeline with my husband. And so, of course find the great job, but then it's interview after interview and then waiting. And so it took almost a full year before I actually was onboarded um, from the first interview until my first day. Uh, and so that that's where I ended up here. And I think having um, been living in the Middle East, obviously that was the new position that was being introduced. I think things just aligned really well. Um, that I was in the right place at the right time to be able to to take up that opportunity. Wow, I think they appoint ambassadors quicker <laughs> than I. And I want to ask you about, so you're an American. You yes. grew up in the United States. You said you went to college at Seton Hall for your undergraduate. Yes. So um, did you grow up in New Jersey or somewhere in that area? No, so it's funny. So I was born and raised in New York City in Manhattan, specifically the Washington Heights area. Mm -hmm. So anyone seen the movie, The Heights? Yes, that is my um, growing up neighborhood. But my family moved uh, to Rhode Island when I was mm -hmm. starting sixth grade. From sixth grade through high school, I was in Rhode Island, small town, West Warwick. When I left New York, I think I left at a time where I really felt it was a big shock, honestly, moving from New York City in that particular area to where I moved in Rhode Island. And so I always had this desire to go back. Uh, for me, it was like going back home. And so when I was looking for universities, I really was, I, I, I did expand, but I did look in New Jersey, in New York, 
um, because I felt a calling to head back in that area. I was fortunate that, you know, my mom was working for a university uh, here in Rhode Island and they had a tuition exchange program. Mm -hmm. And it was a very generous one that allowed me to go to, you know, very many different institutions. And so um, I really concentrated on a lot in that area. That was kind of the driving force for me in terms of, okay, who's on the list and what institutions? (laughs) And then where are they located? I think that that's fondness of memory of going back home is really what drew me back there. I mean, for my graduate studies, I I went to New York University. So I really did stay in the tri-state area. I'd be interested to hear. So as an American and Mm -hmm. you you stayed until you were in your 20s and then you got this role that took you overseas and then you stayed for 18 more years and where you continue in a completely different country, different culture, different language. I mean, just almost as opposite from where you grew up to where you are and where you continue to live and have stayed for so many years. Talk Mm -hmm. a little, I think uh, some of, well, all of our listeners are international educators, some of whom have made that leap and moved across the pond or across the world and lived in a different country and culture, but many of whom have not and who want to do that. That's why we work in international education, because we're attracted to that side of life and to the other and learning about and living within a different culture and a different country. Can you talk to talk to us a little bit about making that leap and what's it been like and the cultural differences and you having, you know, had your background in the United States, how you've had to adjust? What's interesting is that the move of my family from New York City to Rhode Island, I think was a primer for that major culture shock. And when I lived in New York City, I attended a private school, Catholic. I was wearing a uniform every day. And the students at the school were very diverse, very diverse. So the area of Washington Heights is predominantly Hispanic. So a lot of Dominicans in particular, which is where my family's from. Uh, So there's a lot of visual familiarity. Everyone's language, looks, it's very diverse, but everyone's kind of similar background. When I moved to Rhode Island, um, that was a very different experience. And so I went to a public school. Um, However, the school that I did attend was newer. So the plus was that students from a few of the different elementary schools were brought in So at least, you know, there was a mix of students that were new to others. I wasn't completely, completely new, but there were a lot of groupings of students. The one shock for me, though, was I was the only person of color in the entire school. And that's from students to staff to teachers to administrators. There was not one other person in that school in that year of color. Um, which was very shocking for me, but it also, it was very othering. So it was the first time that I really felt like an outsider where I didn't know necessarily how to engage. How do you read the room when you're being looked at in a particular way? The types of questions that I was being asked, it was also um, sheltered type of experiences for some of the students had never traveled outside of the state. I had traveled outside of the country and moved from one state to another. So for some students, it was really surprising. Um, The fact that I came from New York City, you know, they had these stereotypes of what that meant. Like, did you get hijacked on the street? Can you walk on the road? It was, there was a lot 
to, to process. And especially at the age of 12, I was like, what is going on here? This is like another planet, another world. The accents were different. They used different words, you know, on a, on a small scale. I felt like that was a huge culture shock and transition at a time in my life where it's you're you know trying to find your identity and you're you're kind of exploring different things you might be interested in um, that I think served as a good primer for me and honestly I think that in terms of where I've ended up in being interested in cross cultural communications um, it really stemmed from that experience moving to the Middle East. Uh, was a very, again, shocking thing for Qatar 18 years ago. Um, what you see now, especially after the World Cup and all the growth and development and increase in population, 18 years ago, Qatar was a very different place. Um, it was it was not something you could easily find information about. Um, you know, I would look at books, uh, Lonely Planet, and it was, you know, it's like the most boring place on earth, I think was literally the description <laughs> that they had in the book. And so my husband and I were trying to decide, do we go? Do we not go? We didn't have kids at the time. So it was it was an adventure. Uh, we were both going to have the opportunity to be working on the project. The key there with that transition, I felt like I was in it with somebody else who was going to go through that same kind of process. When I was ready to move and quit and let's get out of here, he was like, okay, let's hang on for a little bit more and then vice versa. And so I think the longevity as a result of having kind of community and support to get through those mega bumps and, and hurdles there. Qatar was already moving in a direction of growth and development. So a lot of new programs, new concerts, new buildings were already being introduced. And it was never really a very restrictive type of environment in the sense that before I left, I was concerned, you know, okay, do I have to dress a particular way? Am I allowed to go wherever I want to go? Or do I need to be chaperoned? Or all of these major stereotypes that exist, I think, when you only hear stories from other people or see portrayals in films or TV shows. So for me, it's been very nice to have the experience. And I say very nice is it's <laughs> very simple thing but to also be the voice of breaking stereotypes I would say because even when I would come back for visits and talk to family and friends there would still be this perception of shock or how could you stay there how what's your day-to-day -day like how do you dress where do you go how do you talk to people I I've been able to serve as somewhat of a let me give you a glimpse into what that is actually like and promote. You need to go and see things for yourself. I'm not going to say it's easy all the time. 18 years has been a long time. I've definitely hit points when I felt it's time to move on. Uh, but when you have good opportunities, good friends, good experiences, uh, especially with, I have, like I mentioned, I have three kids now as well. The experience that they have there is unique. Uh, there are things that I feel it's important for me to emphasize that we do live in a bit of a bubble when we live in Qatar, but it is a very safe place. 
And I appreciate that. It's it's finding the balance of the pros and cons. I do enjoy the time that, you know, this position has a lot of travel <laughs> as part of the role. And so the summertime, I try to stack different travel so that I can have my kids in the U.S. for kind of their summer break um, in between my work so that they can also get um, this experience as well. And, and try to kind of be those cultural navigators and ambassadors as well um, when they're there. But definitely uh, a lot of the folks that we have come to know over the years in Qatar, there's kind of the two camps, those that do come, do their time and head out. Um, and those that small grouping of us that have stayed on much longer than we actually anticipated. But I think having that, that close-knit group that is supportive, that serves as your family away from home is is really essential and really important. I think without that, it would be a very different experience and probably not as enjoyable and maybe would contribute to having left sooner, honestly. Wow, <laughs> what an incredible journey you've had. It's amazing. And, and I have so many questions. Uh, first of all, I didn't know you were in housing. That's kind of my background as well when I first okay. started. Right. So, so, so it's just so, you know, I think there's, there's a certain quality of a person that goes into housing too. So we could talk about that another time, you know, in hindsight. So I have multiple questions. I'm going to ask you in hindsight, your move to Qatar, was Mm -hmm. that uh, an easier transition compared to your move to Rhode Island when you were 12? And then all the things you just talked about, right? Things have changed a lot in the U.S., you're having those conversations with your kids about their journey here, even though it's for a few weeks in the summer, but your job and the work you do and the mm-hmm. advisors that you manage around your region, all of the work that they're doing, the conversations are about getting students from there to come study here. Yeah. How do you couch all of this in terms of the things you're talking about? Experiences can be different. The things that are happening now in the U.S. are a little concerning, maybe. Tons of things. Yeah. So first, the quick, easy answer. I think to some extent, yes, probably the move to Rhode Island was more difficult. I think also because of what stage in my life that was, never having had that type of transition. I've grown to be a little bit more social and vocal and uh, a little bit more extroverted. But deep down, I'm, I'm a deep introvert. And at that time, it was very obvious. I would talk to very few people. I would never do public anything. Um, And so it was just much more difficult for me to engage and adapt at that stage. Um, And like I said, I think the support and kind of anticipating what a transition like that would feel like or mean was slightly easier from that perspective, making the shift um, to Qatar. But I think, you know, you, you, you get through these mega challenges and come out stronger with great stories on the other side, as long as you survive them with a smile at some point down the line. Um, That's how I feel about kind of the transition um, with Qatar. With the conversations, what's what's interesting is that I do travel a lot. And this particular job pushed me also personally uh, to grow in comfort with traveling alone. That's not something I ever really did. For solo travelers, they pretty much choose kind of where they want to go, city travel, beach travel, kind of maybe in a group. 
And in this case, I have a set portfolio of countries. And again, like I said, this is not a region that I ever was thinking, oh, let me go visit Iraq or Algeria. Um, those are two countries that I, I mentioned specifically because one was the more recent one. So I did visit Iraq in November this past um, this past year. Um, but even going to Algeria, again, it was I had no picture in my head of what that looked like. What was it like on the ground? What are the people like moving around? It just the visual just didn't exist for me. And that was one of the first trips where I really started to feel like, okay, let me let me use this time and, and be a little bit adventurous. Um, I'll walk around, I'll try to talk to people, I'll just try to be here and not just, you know, taxi from my hotel to my meetings and back, but just kind of be around. That level of, I guess, growth in that space allows me to have those conversations with advisors giving them my personal experience in that or when I do have an opportunity to meet with parents as well as a parent to to give them my honest opinion. Yes, I'm American and going to the U.S. can be scary, but here is how I viewed some of these other places and what the experiences were like. And while things can happen everywhere, it's about how can you be best prepared to respond? What systems are in place to mitigate that and minimize some of those issues. Um, and so I can speak to that from personal experience. One as a solo female traveler in a region that, again, I was like, I will never do that, but I have. And then also with, with my own children and, and thinking about the conversations and how to have those conversations and, and balancing the, they've got to experience things and not necessarily be scared, but you also want them to be aware and prepared. So how do you how do you strike a balance there? And I think that that's something that I'm still working on and working through. Hopefully I answered most of your questions there. <laughs> no, you did. I mean, it's, it's a tough, difficult uh, conversation to have, right? I mean, we all know we're in international education. We know the value of the global educational experience. We know the value of an American education, but trying to counter that with some of the concerns that are increasingly more concerning globally, I think. Uh, so yeah, I don't envy you at all. <laughs> yeah, and but it's it's so interesting because I don't always like to be the counter to everything, especially when I'm I'm talking to people back home that say, well, yeah, it would be great for people to come, study or work. But if I say I'm going to, you know, Israel or the West Bank or Iraq for that matter, it's like, oh my gosh, how can you go there? <laughs> you know? And I'm like, you see that reaction? That's exactly how people feel right now about coming to the States. And so I think that it's also important to be able to, on both sides, connect to what that feeling or fear or concern is and really make it relatable to the other side to say that's exactly how people feel you know are you safe here generally speaking you should be but there are things that happen it's not every single place it's not the entire country that's affected so yeah. it's at least given me a good place to start some of those conversations from um, and bring and kind of bring that about. Say, well, hey, let's talk about this for a second. 
And aside from safety questions, so your role is to oversee advising in a region for students who are interested in that region to study in the United States as a whole. So you're really, you're representing, you are the face of the United States (laughs) across a a huge area. And, And you're advising advisors on how they should respond and answer questions. Or maybe you're talking to students yourself. Aside from safety questions, which we kind of just talked about, what are some of the things you hear from students and parents? What kinds of questions do they have? What do they want to know about studying in the United States? Are there some common themes, common subjects, states that are more interesting to others? Do they want to know about the social life, the entertainment? What what do you get in this role? Yeah, we get a lot. And so, yeah, my role really is to work more closely with the advisors on the one hand and on the other, also with uh, U.S. university and college representatives, as well as kind of local college representatives and and ministries to to make sure all stakeholders are connected and, and aware. So I try to stay abreast of these questions, the trends, the interests that are coming up. Safety is one is one that's there. Obviously, around the times of COVID, that raised a lot of health concerns. Um, in general, about what's accessible, um, you know, especially when campuses were shutting down and students couldn't travel home, and what what's available for students in emergency situations. Parents have one, you know one more focused thing on cost, and so how much is it going to cost? What are the job prospects? You know, those are the the angle, I guess, of questions from the parents, rightfully so. Okay, this is an investment. So what's the return on that? Uh, I think students do have a wide range of questions. Um, and it, it, it just depends on the fields that they're studying in. So oftentimes they do have an interest in terms of the post-graduation career opportunities. But internships and research are questions that they do ask about. We have quite a bit of interest in sports. So there's a lot of questions that our advisors are fielding about sports scholarships. And the the range of sports is, is broad. It's beyond everything. I think even pickleball was asked about recently. They do ask a lot about the experience. Um, so what organizations are there? The more that they've had connection with Education USA, their questions are are much more pointed and helpful for them to kind of discern. For those that haven't really worked with Education USA or not are not as familiar, a lot of the questions tend to be around scholarships and you know, how can we help them get scholarships? Questions about test optional come up where students wonder if I don't do it is that going to harm my chances so I think there's still some questions from students about what those policies mean um, and you know really what does it mean so our advisors are fielding a lot of those types of questions very good. Very, very, very diplomatic. Very yes, diplomatic. diplomatic. Like I said, almost yeah. an ambassador. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Next step. That's your next step. Marcia. Yes, yes. <laughs> mm, I don't know. <laughs> uh, what is next step? Well, <laughs> um, 
I am currently pursuing a doctorate in leadership. And so challenging myself on that front at the moment, finding it a very uh, dynamic time to balance work, family, studies, travel, lots of other things um, when all those deadlines don't align in the best way, trying to make it work. For now, it's really just focusing on my program, getting through that to then see what what comes next from that um, experience. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily see myself, it's an EDD program. Again, in terms of fit, I knew PhD was not the path for me it was, yeah, that was something I knew for a very long time. I've done a bit of teaching when I worked at Carnegie Mellon, I did teach for a little bit and I enjoyed that, but that's not something I see as what I would like to do in terms of full-time professor. I do enjoy training. I do enjoy facilitating workshops and conversations and thinking big pictures of ideas of things that can be done to find connection points between people or programs. And so it'll, I think next steps will be figuring out a way to continue to do that mm-hmm. and creative ways in new spaces. But for the time being, in this particular role, at least, I have been really enjoying, there's a lot of flexibility and autonomy in how I approach my work. Uh, It's a lot of work, but it's all very interesting work. And so, you know, just Middle East, North Africa being my primary region, and now for the past year covering Western and Northern Europe, I've had an opportunity to learn even new things. And even from my fellow React, we all have pretty um, wide ranging backgrounds. Some have been Fulbrighters, some have done Peace Corps, many have been advisors prior to, to becoming a React. And so we all bring in different expertise and perspectives. And so I feel like I'm constantly learning from them. I'm constantly learning from my advisors. And then as I work with new embassies and consulates and Fulbright commissions and Amity's and other organizations. There's so much to learn in this role that um, I feel like the next thing always for me is what can I learn today? Um, And then what can I do with that to help maybe another office or advisor that didn't know about this, but that could really help them. So for now, I'm enjoying being in this space of kind of connecting knowledge, gathering trends, sharing that back out and and finding ways where I can be useful and helpful um, and making things a little bit better. So that's amazing. (laughs) I'm just, I'm in awe because you work full time, you have three kids, you're doing your doctor. I mean, I find it difficult just sitting down to do this podcast. I was just like, oh man, I got to do some podcast editing. <laughs> so impressed, Melissa. That's amazing. And, you know, we appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure you probably have to get back to your doctorate work. So we'll, we'll start wrapping up here. Um, so as we do, we always try to end on like a little lighter note. Um, so sure. I'm curious. Doha is one of my favorite cities in the world. I love coming to Doha. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I haven't done everything there is to do there. So for someone who's traveling to Doha, what yeah. should they absolutely do? I, I love karak. I love some roti. 
chapati, whatever they have. But what else should I be doing when I'm coming when I come to Doha? Wow, that would have been a super easy question to answer a few years ago because there wasn't as many options. So depending on your interest, I mean, for foodies in particular, uh, there's so many different restaurants and cuisines that are available. And sometimes, you know, they'll bring these Michelin star chefs to come in and do these special dinner events. And so if you're a foodie, I would definitely say trying some of the um, newer restaurants that exist. There's a lot of fusion um, styles with a mix from different countries and regions. But then you can also get very authentic um, cuisine because Qatar is such an international place that you have restaurants catering to a lot of different populations. And so if you don't necessarily get to those countries, you can probably try some food from there that's quite authentic as well. So that's one of the things I would say, um, because usually it's very hot. And so indoor activities tend to be much more uh, safe to plan for depending on the time of year. But even with that, I mean, I would say each of the Gulf countries, although they have deserts, they look different. So if you do travel in the region, it's always interesting to see what the Qatar Desert looks like in terms of the color of the sand and just how the hills and stuff are there versus a place like Oman, which is very different as well. For someone that travels like that, being able to have experiences that allow you to compare one to the other so you can see that they are different would be something else that I would say is is worth doing while you're there. So and on that, speaking of travel, and you said your role has taken you, you do a lot of travel in your work and it's taken mm-hmm. to you many places, I guess, particularly within your MENA region. What has been the most surprising place that your work has taken you to that you've had to travel to um, where you had maybe preconceptions about how it might be and you've been like, wow, or a favorite if you can't think of one well, of the others? Well, since I'm covering Western and Northern Europe, I've had a chance to now um, you know, visit two countries there. And so I just got back from Iceland. last. Oh. I was in Iceland last week. And again, it's one of these places that you know the name of the country, you might have seen Northern Lights, but what does it really look like? And so landing at the airport and it being, what, 10 p.m. is still bright out because the sun sets at midnight and rises at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And so experiencing that was very unique. It doesn't actually get dark. Um, So it's still pretty much twilight throughout the whole time. And so that was very surprising. But in terms of, um, you know, I've seen the glaciers and photos and things, but the terrain of the lava, that was very unique and something I didn't expect. And so driving along, you look around and you're wondering, where am I? What is this place? Um, it's so different. Once you kind of get out of that, then you start to see green, then you start to see, you know, more natural grounds. But um, I think that was a more recent example. And because it's out of my typical MENA region, again, it wasn't a place that I anticipated traveling to, um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, everyone said, oh, this, this weather is so nice at this time of year. And coming from a desert climate, I figured, oh, that means hot. 
Um, it's not actually hot. It's just nice for Iceland. <laughs> it was not still, cold. <laughs> it was quite cold. It was quite cold. I'm like all zipped up with my scarf and multiple layers. And, you know, the weather started to get a little bit nice not last week. So mm-hmm. you had Icelanders walking around in shorts and tank tops. And I'm like hoodie and scarf and it was crazy. <laughs> but but it was definitely um, an enjoyable experience just to kind of, you know, see a different place, walk around. Yeah, it was not a place I anticipated visiting, at least for work. I mean, it was on the bucket list, but um, not for any near time. I'm gonna, I have one quick question for you. You sure. mentioned you're up to speed on trends so you can understand what's going on and share that knowledge with your advisors and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Artificial intelligence, chat GPT. Get rich. I have to ask. You have to always the chat GPT. Yes. Because <laughs> no, I'm curious what people are doing. Like what, what is Melissa doing with chat GPT and AI in the work she does? Yeah. So what's interesting is, so the advisors are asking a lot of questions about it because especially those that work with cohort um, advising programs, those students get much more in-depth kind of conversations. I think I've shared with them, there was a special issue of the higher education newsletter that goes out. um, So they had access to some of those articles. But what I'm seeing, you know, some schools are using um, AI programs and trying to encourage students to use them appropriately. So, you know, ask them questions to guide you in the right direction, but don't have it write your stuff for you. Depending on how students continue to engage with it or try to use it, that may or may not get curbed accordingly. I think especially in a region like the Middle East and North Africa, where the types of approach to instruction going from memorization to maybe trying to include more critical thinking and analytical skills, you know, how does AI option <laughs> fit in the mix if all they have to do is memorize something? Like that may be very easy to then just say, yeah, write this for me or do this for me. And, and I think that'll present greater challenges. But if students can begin to use it as a tool for identifying themes that then they can explore and, you know, do further research on or think about differently, then at that point, we're leveraging the tool for something positive and productive and not making it this don't use it because students are going to use it. So it's really about fostering proper usage of it um, so that that becomes more of the custom uh, and not having it be the secret thing that we're not supposed to use, but we're going to use it anyway. Let's Mm -hmm. embrace it and figure out how to use it the best way possible and ensure that students understand the difference. I don't know how much into a lot of the schools it is just yet. I know students definitely do use them for for different things. And so it's just a matter of seeing that how that emerges further. Are you using it for your doctorate? I'm not. Um, so it's funny. I had an assignment the other day and my son is like, well, just go to chat. GPT. I was like, that's not the point. That's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing it so I can learn and do it. So, I mean, I think I've used it for travel planning. I had a friend who was like, well, just, ch- just ask chat GPT. So you can ask it for what are some highlights in Barcelona? And it'll like sit out a few oh, features. Yeah. 
So for things like that, yes. Um, I haven't quite gotten to having it draft template emails for me yet, but some folks had said, oh, you have to try it. <laughs> so wow. we'll see. For now, it's just been my my travel advisor um, giving me ideas of things to do. Well, that's awesome. Well, Melissa, yeah. thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's something to learn more about you. Like I said, I've known you and the, the work that you do, but not like the history. So we really yeah. appreciate you being on the podcast. Well, thank you. This is really an honor to be included. I was listening to some of the previous um, episodes. And so, yeah, I'm excited to be to be part of this project. Thanks for listening to Destiny Benders. In the next episode, we speak with Ravi Amigan, Associate Provost at the University of Delaware.